Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Jaron Keith Gaynor, Managing Editor of Politics and Washington Correspondent at The Grio. And now I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, Social Media Director here at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, who's making bank off black bodies? As we move past Super Bowl season and the All-Star Game and finally break into filling out brackets to prepare for March Madness, sports is top of mind for many, at least for those who actually follow sports because it's not quite my ministry. (laughs) I know it's not. (laughs) But whether you're an avid sports fan or you only watch to see who's sitting courtside or to catch the good Super Bowl commercials or if you want to see if Beyonce's looking in Jay-Z's phone, you may be more interested to know a bit more about the nuance behind the mascots, uniforms, forms, end zone dances, and team colors. On today's show, we'll dive into the sports industrial complex, specifically the wider cultural implications of sporting culture, and ultimately understanding who is making greenbacks from the labor of black bodies and what it means to be a black spectator. Our guest today will help us unpack it all. That's right. Dr. Lewis Moore is a professor of history at Grand Valley State University. His research and writing examines the intersections between race and sports and has been included in online outlets, including the Global Sports Institute, Vox, and the African American Intellectual Historical Society. Professor Moore is the co-host of the Black Athlete Podcast and the author of two books, I Fight for a Living, Boxing and the Battle for Black Manhood, 1880 to 1915, and We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and The Quest for Equality. He's currently working on a book about the black quarterback, and we're excited to have him with us here today. Professor Moore, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me. So, Professor Moore, your work falls at the intersection of race, specifically blackness and sports. What initially got you interested in this focus area as both a writer and researcher? Yes, a great question. To to be brief, I would say it starts at childhood. That's all I did was watch sports. Um, And then when I got into college, oh, my senior year at Cal State Sacramento, we had a project to do for a senior thesis on California history. And I chose a boxing match between Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffries. Now the fight happens in Reno, Nevada. But from that moment, I realized that this this is what I could do, right? I could write about blackness, I could write about sports, and then use it as a way to tell a story about America. So as we know, the title of today's show is Making Bank on Black Bodies, which is, is that's a whole thing in and of itself. <laughs> but because we know that sports teams in the at the collegiate and professional level make tons of money running their programs, I mean, I'm a Michigan fan. I'm very aware, Uh, but I am interested, Professor Moore, in thinking about, uh, you know, professional sports as a system. Can you share with us and our listeners in layman's terms, if you can, um, how professional and college sports teams make money? Like, I want to make sure that we're really breaking down and showing where the revenue comes from and the discrepancy between revenue generated and how players are actually being compensated. Yeah, so so we'll start with college, the the supposed amateurs, right? Since you're wearing a Michigan shirt, um, there's there's various ways that these schools make money off these athletes. One is TV deals. Um, so Michigan's part of the Big Ten, and Big Ten has its own TV deal. Um, it's called the Big Ten Big, Big Ten Network, and so they're generating millions, if not billions, from that. They're also signed up with TV deals with ESPN and ABC, so they're getting money off that. You know, the big house has 110,000 people that they, they sit in it. So they're getting money on that. 
they have a Jordan brand contract. So they're getting money from Jordan brand. And so all the, it's not just Michigan, right? It's all these schools have these sneaker contracts, TV contracts, right? Um, they fill these stadiums. They're selling these kids apparel. Um, Michigan's a great example. You know, the Fab Five, if we go back, I'm, you know, I'm dating myself here, but if we go back 30 years, you know, one of the things that they would say is like, look, you could buy a Chris Weber jersey from the bookstore, but Chris Weber wasn't getting any money off that, right? So they're getting money from that. They're getting money from making the NCAA March Madness tournament. They're getting money from making the college, you know, playoff system. You know, even if you're making, what in that final four as Michigan was for the football, um, they're getting millions and millions of dollars. And in theory, the players aren't getting getting it, right? They're not employees, so they're not cutting a check. Today they have NILs, right? You can go and get a, a sponsorship from Gatorade or you can go and get a sponsorship from, you know, the local, you know, wing stop or whatever's out there in Ann Arbor. But that's it, right? There's they're not sharing that huge piece of the pie, right? And and in a in a institution that's what seventy percent black, when we see these players on there, that's problematic. At the pros, it's a little bit different because they have contracts, right? It's hard for us to see, you know, someone like a, a Trey Young signing a two hundred million dollar contract or whatever he's at, and and start to worry about you know revenue sharing, right? But if we break it down, there's there's still billions of dollars out there, and there's always a fight between the owners and players. MLB MLB is a great example of it, even though it's eight percent African American. Right now, they're still fighting over this revenue share. Right? Are we splitting fifty fifty? Are we splitting fifty five fifty? Right? How are we splitting the TV money? How are we split, splitting jerseys? So money is at the center of whether we're talking college, we're talking pro. And Professor Moore, I want to take a step back and talk about combines because I am not a sports fan. Uh, so I didn't hear about combines until I watched uh, Colin Kaepernick's Netflix series. And in that series, he talks about the combine, which is like this series of athletics events that test the athletic skills of these athletes. He compares it to to a slavery auction block. And uh, there are people who agreed with that comparison. There are those who disagree with that comparison, like former NFL player and Utah governor Owen Burgess, who rejected that comparison as um, insulting because the difference is that these athletes have choice and that they're millionaires and they're choosing to participate in these sports. Uh, and there's also just a part that there's this other part of when we talk about this predatory uh behavior as it relates to sports, uh, sports has always been kind of hailed as uh, this avenue of vehicle that promotes higher education. Uh, but there's the example of a former NFL player, Dexter Manley, who was reading on the second grade reading level. And so we know that these schools often protect athletes for the purpose of bringing uh, money and uh, popularity to these institutions. Uh, so my question to you is, do you think this comparison to, to a slave auction is a viable comparison. And I love to understand from you why or why not. Yeah. You know, whenever I tell my students this all the time, uh, I don't know if they're listening or not, but I do is whenever we say slavery in the U S we do it for a purpose, right? We do it to, to get a reaction because we know deep down inside, whether we want to admit it or not, we know how awful slavery was. We know how exploitive it was. So, you know, if you even go back 150, 160 years, when someone says slavery, they say white slavery, for example, that's prostitution, right? And then we get a bill legislation is called the man act to, to stop prostitution, right? Baseball players back in the 1890s said they were slaves. These are white baseball players who are Jim Crowing black players said they're slaves because of the reserve clause, right? But they did that because they knew Americans would listen. 
So when Kaepernick says, like, the, or anybody says the combine's like the slave auction, he's saying that in a way so we pay attention to the exploitation that's going on. That's first. But then when we look at it, right, and if we break down and we look at the slave auction and we're talking about, you know, grown men, this idea that whether it's seasoning and, and preparing them to be sold at auction or we're talking about people checking them, right? We're, they're checking, you know, slavery. They're checking their gums to see how healthy they are. They're checking their muscles. They're having them dance around to see if this is going to be a viable option for me to, you know, to buy this, this, this human being, right? Who I'm supposed to keep for life. If we, you know, fast forward to football, it's the same thing. Is this person strong? Let me check his knees. Let me check his arms. You know, strip down all the way to, to, to your draws, right? Let me see how fast you run. Let me see how much you can produce for me, how much I'm going to invest in you, right? And so when you compare them side by side, it looks like it. Now, correct. These guys have a choice, I, I, I guess, but there's no other way, right? If, if you from a young age are told this is what you're going to be and we put you in pop Warner football, we put you in high school, we put you in college. And this is what you're told you're going to be. You have little choice when you're 22, right? And this gets to the second point. And we haven't educated you that much at these colleges because we're using and abusing you. So someone like a Dexter Manley, who you said could read at a second grade level, that happened all the time, right? Because what these colleges do, they see this kid, they get what they can out of him from four years and, and they don't graduate. So part of, we talk about the revolt of the black athlete from the 1960s. A huge chunk of that is college athletes wanting better education, right? Realizing that they're just bringing us in from, you know, from the hood, bringing us in the middle of Iowa only to play football, not to educate us. So if we look at a lot of the times these athletes are boycotting in the 1960s, a centerpiece of that, what they're asking for to come back is a better education system. You know, graduate me on time because if you don't graduate me on time, you're just going to leave me out there. And that happens a lot. It's not just Dexter Manley, right? There's other stories like Hot Rod John Williams, who played for the Cleveland Cats, went to Tulane, which is a great private school in New Orleans, couldn't read and couldn't write. But yet here who was able to make it through Tulane, make it to the NBA. And so when we talk about exploitation, that's what we're talking about. That is deep. Okay. Um, so I want us to talk, <laughs> you know, everyone always references Oscars so white. Um, but, you know, we definitely have to acknowledge that there are other industries being majority owned or led by white folks. And it's crazy. But when you look at the demographics of owners for players for sports teams, it it damn, it's also white. <laughs> uh, so let's get into a few stats before I get into my question. Um, black owners of professional U.S. sports teams are few and far between. Of the three major sports leagues in the U.S. right now, which are what the NFL, the NBA, the M MLB, um, only one principal owner is black, and that is Michael Jordan, who's the principal owner of the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, and then it's even worse when you look at the NFL, there are only two people of color who own NFL teams. And for our listeners, let's make that distinction. When we say people of color, we're not talking about black folks. There is a difference. Uh, you know, while literally every other owner is white and, and hell, even from like a management and a coaching level for the 32 NFL teams, there are just three, just three black head coaches and two general managers and who are black. And it's, that's astounding to me. Um, so can you share with us, Professor Moore, a little bit more about 
why we continue to see this huge disparity. I mean, I know I have my my theories, but <laughs> like, why are there not more black owners or at the very least black folks in key management roles, which we know, you know, are really the decision makers when it comes to things like, I don't know, compensation, for example, like how, how did this happen and how is it continuing? <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's a, a great question. And I think it's important to go back in history and, and say that we had black owners, right? We had them in Negro League Baseball. Uh, the majority of those teams outside the Kansas City Monarchs and, and a few other teams, they're black owned. Now, they might have been owned by numbers runners, but they were still black owned. And what's happening with integration and what they warned us about, someone like an Effa Manley who, who owned the uh, Newark Eagles, right? Um, her and her husband, but she's the face of the franchise is that once integration comes, they're only bringing the talent. They're not bringing anybody else, right? They're not bringing in the coaches. They're not bringing in the umpires. And they're certainly not bringing in the owners. So some of these owners, what they're trying to do is like, hey, bring our our full team in so we can have a piece of this pot. But when integration happens, that doesn't happen, right? And, and, And part of it is they don't want you... To be part of that club. Now, Michael Jordan's special, and 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 this is not me saying anything about, you know, I'm a Dominique Wilkins fan, by the way, greatest basketball player ever, won a slam dunk contest. But Michael Jordan is, is special in the sense that if you read the literature about him from the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, academic literature, and, and even his agent, what people see as him as raceless. He's black when we see him. We know that. And I, this is not me putting him in a box. This is how people see. It's I want to be like Mike, right? And he's able to ray, rise above this idea of, of, of blackness, right? That he's black. They understand that he's a black owner, but people are comfortable with Michael Jordan. You get the sense that these leagues aren't going to be comfortable with other black people being part of that league, being part of that, you know, that billionaire's boys club. And and they're kept out. Now, there's an opportunity in the NFL, not necessarily Jay-Z to own a team, but Byron Allen, who I believe was a was a was a past guest, uh, talking about buying the the Denver Broncos, right? And that's that's real, right? That's a real opportunity. So something to to look into to see if he gets a chance. Now, on the question of management, it's the same thing, right? Because when we're talking management is you're right there next to the owner. Do I want to hang out with that person? Do I want that person, right? I'm giving control of my my billion-dollar team to this person. Do I have faith in him? And part of the problem is, you know, when it comes to the black athlete is for the longest, we've never seen them. When I say we, like Americans and, and you know, ownership, have never really seen the black athletes to be the thinkers, right? They're out there. They're the athletes, but they're not the ones who are capable of thinking, despite the fact that we know, right? If we look at the NFL, one of the greatest GMs ever is Ozzie Newsome, right? A black man who who made Balt- the Baltimore Ravens into the greatest defense ever, right? And 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 su- two time Super Bowl championship, right? So we know that they could could you know create these teams. We know they could hire. They could do this. It's just that they're not getting the opportunities because part of it is just these these stereotypes that we have, and also part of it, do I feel comfortable being next to this guy all the time? And you mentioned Byron Allen. So full disclosure, Byron Allen is the owner of the Grio and therefore owns their culture. Uh, but we we, mentioned, we wish him all the best of luck on his uh, on his quest to uh, to own the Broncos. Um, mm. But speaking of ownership, uh, I know the end up the WNBA has been talking about expansions. Uh, the African-American Sports and Entertainment Group, which is an all-Black ownership group based in Oakland, has already gotten unanimous approval in the fall of 2021 to move forward with ownership 
of a WNBA to play out of the Oakland arena. So we may see an amazing model coming out of the WNBA. So I just wanted to make sure we, we shouted them out as well. Yes, we, we love a good WNBA win. Uh, <laughs> but I, I kind of wanted to follow up a little bit more on, you know, we mentioned the NCAA. Um, but first, let's kind of dig into some statistics. So I know that recently the inability for players to also earn revenue or otherwise benefit from their status as a college athlete in particular has been discussed quite heavily <laughs> with the recent changes to NCAA's rules. So for our listeners, if you don't know, if you're, if you're not, if you're kind of like Jaren, not a sports fanatic, uh, specifically right now, the NCAA now allows for NCAA college athletes to have the opportunity to benefit from their name image and likeness beginning. And I think that started the fall of last year, 2021. Um, and I mean, previously athletes, you, you couldn't do any of that. You were disallowed for engaging in several activities as it would be considering violating NCAA rules. So professor Moore, can you talk to us a little bit more about that particular rule change and what does that mean for athletes from an equity perspective? And what other kind of equity gaps are we seeing across the league? Like, ultimately, I'm wondering, you know, is there a sports team or a league that's being a good model in terms of equity for players? Or, I mean, should we all be boycotting everything? I, like, <laughs> what are we What are we doing here? Right. So with, with the NILs, I, you know, it's opened up an opportunity for a lot of people to get deals, right? Uh, whether it's the local pizza shop or the wing shop or some people we've seen get ma- major deals with Gatorade. We know uh, Azzy Fudd, who plays for UConn basketball, has a, a deal with, with Steph Curry and, and his company. And so in, in the sense of those terms, and equity, you know, empowering, you know, I can go out and make my own money. I don't have to listen to you coach all the time, right? That That's important. But the idea is they're still not sharing the ultimate piece of the pie, which is the billion dollars that these, these institutions make. Now, the other problem that we see, and I wrote about this um, a few months ago, go is on the women's side of sports right right when this signed the first people who are getting these deals are white women they're blonde women right they're the ones who these companies feel right more comfortable with the girl next door right and this is no knock on them right they're you know Paige Bukers is is very talented a very great player Cameron Brink for Stanford is a great player but you know Black women at that time in the college basketball weren't getting these mega deals. Now, you're starting to see a few get deals. Uh, Azzy Fudd, who, who's got an American Eagle deal also. Um, I believe LeBron's company signed a high school a girl, a clutch sports size, a, a high school girl, a black woman out in California get these deals. But it's the, the darker women, right? Like Aaliyah Boston of South Carolina aren't getting those deals. They're not getting the mega deals. So that to me, that's something to pay attention to. In terms of professional leagues and, and equity, the, the model is the NBA. And, and I say that because the NBA realized a long time ago that they're a black league, right? They're, they, that's how they have to market themselves, right? I think the NFL, they don't want to admit to themselves that they're a black league, right? Because they still have white faces who are the franchise, like a Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers, who may or may not be here next year. But the NBA can't do that. And the NBA knew they couldn't do that starting in the late 1980s. So it's very, it's very hip hop oriented. Now they've had their problems like the Malice in the Palace and stuff like that. And, you know, you guys have to have a dress code, 
But, you know, they flipped it, right? These guys come suited and booted to the games and, and they're supposed to be dressed in business casual. And now they, you know, they're wearing what they want to wear and, and they make it look nice. And you get the sense that the players have a seat at the table, right? To, to form the league the way they want to form the league, even though there's only one black owner, you get the sense that there's more player empowerment there. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you even mentioned women's sports, you know, as we're inching up to March, you know, which is Women's History Month. And I mean, women's athletes are out here killing it and not getting nearly enough credit. I mean, hell, even right now, I believe the U.S. women's soccer team uh, just won a million, a $24 million lawsuit uh, for pay equity. Uh, (laughs) So that in and of itself, like, shout out to y'all ladies, my sisters. I love (laughs) y'all. Uh, yes, and this is our last question to you, Professor Moore. And speaking of uh, the women players of the sports world, we've seen some really amazing advocacy from Black players in the fight for Black lives and political movements more broadly. And I think about uh, the Atlanta Dream uh, team, the women uh, of the WNBA, when they protested um, playing games against their owner at the time, then Senator Kelly Leffler, who had expressed anti-Black Lives Matter uh, opinions. I think of uh, tennis great Naomi Osaka, who famously wore masks of of Black people killed by police, like Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Uh, And we've I mentioned earlier Colin Kaepernick and his activism, and I think that we should we would be remiss if we did not acknowledge the sacrifice that Kaepernick made um, through his protest. Um, and for those who might not know the full details of that, I really encourage them to watch um, his Netflix series, uh, Colin in Black and White. Uh, but Colin Kaepernick literally not only lost his job, but lost uh, reportedly tens of millions of dollars for his protest. According to the Reno Gazette Journal, it was estimated around $30 million, which is like mind blowing. What role do you think black athletes play or should play in the broader social justice movement? Yeah, that's, that's a, a good question. Um, I try to tackle it a little bit, shameless plug, and we will win the day. And, and I want to back up first to um to black women right and and i think they're overshadowed in this conversation um and so there's you know i try to talk about a little bit in the book but there's not a lot of black women athletes you know between when i'm writing the book but you know a woman like rose robinson who was who's a um high jumper right in in the 1950s refusing to to participate in the goodwill games against russia because she didn't want to be used as a political pawn she also didn't stand for the national anthem in the late 1950s um, you have women like Maggie Hathaway, who was an amateur athlete, but worked tirelessly to to um, integrate golf, worked to help um, integrate the NFL with the Washington football team, worked with Jim Brown and, and black athletes at the Black Economic Union. Right. So women are at the forefront. They're not getting the same attention. And today, as you mentioned, whether it's the Atlanta Dream, the Minnesota Lynx, right, 2016, before Kaepernick starts to kneel, the Minnesota Lynx are wearing Black Lives Matter shirts and and they're refusing to talk to the media unless they're asking them questions about that, right? That's powerful stuff. That's leadership. And and what we see from the athletes is that's what we need from them, right? Um, When it comes to the civil rights movement of the 1960s or today, if we want to call it the Black Lives Matter movement, I I don't know if historians have have quite termed it yet. We're still living in it. Um, Black athletes aren't necessarily, you know, the ones who are leading it, but they're using their platform 
to raise awareness. And I think that's where they need to be, right? So it, it takes some time, right? It takes, it's not like, you know, if we, we can name a black athlete from, it's not like, you know, Ali or Jim Brown, they're not out there on the front lines before the sit-in movement, before the freedom rides, right? They come afterwards because it's the people on the street who allow them to do this, right? To make it more comfortable, they'll come afterwards. And I think that's where they need to be now. Like we'll come afterwards, but we'll use our platform. And we see a ton of that in the summer of 2020 post George Floyd athletes, whether it's the Atlanta Dream or Giannis and the Milwaukee Bucks coming after the movement, but using their platform to raise awareness, right? Understanding that they have a certain privilege as athletes, a certain privilege as athletes who get a paycheck, a really nice paycheck all the time, that we also have this platform and we can use it to raise awareness. And I think that's where they need to be. Well, Professor Moore, uh, it's been so wonderful having you on Dear Culture. Even though I'm not a fan, sports is really an integral part of U.S. culture and black culture. And I think that um, your wisdom and, and this discussion really gave us an opportunity to really have a deeper dive conversation about the understanding of the historical foundations of black people in sports. Uh, sports, the sports industry at large, and we really appreciate you. Uh, for more information about Professor Lewis Moore, you can visit his website at proflumore.com. That's P-R-O-F-L-O-U-M-O-O-R-E.com. It's also where you can buy his amazing books. And as always, for more news and commentary on the culture, visit The Griot's website at www.thegriot.com. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at DearCulturePod. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is Civil. Civil is a Black-owned, values-based technology company serving the public sector. Leveraging their software as a service platform, Civil manages compliments and complaints about law enforcement while allowing the public to have transparency into the status of their submission as well. Founded by civilian Tony Rice II, Civil's mission is to create a safer world for all civilians. Their vision is to be the global leader in civilian-focused solutions. To learn more about Civil, visit their website at civilco.com. That's S-I-V-I-L-C-O dot com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and co-produced by Taji Sr., Sydney Henriquez-Payne, and Abdul Caduce. 